Welcome to the show. We are sharing stories with solutions from people who have overcome adversity and healed their life. I am your host, Victoria Johnson, teacher training for the Heal Your Life Workshop Teacher and Heal Your Life Coach Training Program. You can learn more about me and the training at thetraining.ca. That's T-H-E training.ca. As Louise Hay always said, the point of power is in the present moment. So let's get started. Hello, beautiful listeners and viewers, and welcome back to another podcast. As some of you may have noticed, I took a break for the last couple of months, just regrouped, and now have this beautiful lineup of people who are guests on the podcast to share with you, and I am excited about that. And so our first guest today is an author, and she's my favorite kind of author because she's a storyteller, and she is telling the story of post War London, the 1960s post-war London, through her story. The book is called Lamlash Street, the subtitle Portrait of 1960s Post-War London Through One Family's Story. I'm telling you that now right up front, so you can go check it out on Amazon. So that's Amazon US, UK, and Canada, and pick up your copy. And Jill, we are so happy to have you here with us. We know that this book has been an emotional journey for you, and how beautiful that you've preserved your family history. And in doing so, I just really excited to share with the listeners the adversities that you've gone through and overcome and how you are now promoting your story as well as encouraging others to share theirs. So welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thank you. So I think the book is sort of multi-generational in a sense because the book is a story of Lamlash Street, which is said in the 1960s. And it's principally, it's me as a 10-year-old and my family. Mm -hmm. But it also, a lot of it is about my mother. Uh, my mother steered us from a working class background to a time when she passed away just in January, where she, we have, we're all have inheritances now because financially we're so much better off than we, they were back then. And the reason I wrote the book, and I'm so happy I wrote it, one of the reasons I so happy I've written the book. And I think this is for me, the biggest thing is, as I said, my mother passed away in January and it was from COVID. And although my mother's gone, she was 90, but although she's gone, I still miss her. It's the fact that I can still talk about her. I can still talk about what she was like as a person. I can still talk to the, let the other family members know what an amazing woman she was for her time. Because one of the things I think we forget about as, as time moves on is the 1960s was an awful long time ago. The attitude of men towards women was very different. Women were very much kept in the home. I can recall growing up when if somebody had a career, if a woman had a career, it was, oh, she's got a career because she's not married and she doesn't have children. It was that sort of attitude. But in that day, uh, despite the fact that that was the, the stereotypical way you were supposed to behave, like men were men and women were women. Also, what this book does is it's, it's brought out, it brings out the, how my mother was so different. And I, in turn, have been different because my mother was different in her, her day. My mother had a very quiet husband, which is probably just as well because she was the one that led everything. And when I was writing this book, what was really interesting was I had no idea about my mother's past, about her younger days, until I started talking to her and said, well, mum, no, what happened during the war? Oh, we were evacuated during the war. So what does that mean, mum? Oh, me and your auntie Ellen were evacuated. Um, but what I learned afterwards and what I managed to piece together as I was writing the book is the fact that 
My mother is the way she is because of the war. During the war, uh, my mother was 10 and my auntie Ellen was 13 and they were evacuated from London during the, the bombing, the Blitz, out to the country. The first year they went to Wales and they were badly, badly mistreated. They lived on bread and jam for the whole year and the family they were billeted with, were staying with, they took all the, the extra food for their family. So then the second year, they were moved to another family and they treated them incredibly well. However, while they were there, they were coming back from school one day and they heard the noise of a plane flying near them. And when they looked around, it was a fighter pilot, um, a World War II enemy pilot in his plane. And he was firing on my aunts and my mother. They were in school uniform. They had their, their book bags with them, the whole thing. And they were fired on and they had to, she said, what did you do, mum? Oh, we just, uh, we had to run and we ran into the Brussels sprouts uh, pa uh, patch. And then the aircraft flew over the top and then we, you know, and he missed us. And I said, well, what happened next? Well, after that happened, we went and told the people we were staying with and they said, oh, um, is everything okay? She said, oh yeah, we're fine. We weren't hit. They said, oh, that's good. And then to go and get your supper. And that, that was all they said about it. And then he went back to talking about the Woolworths, a store down in the village that had been bombed. And they were more concerned about the store, the Woolworths store being bombed than, you know, are you okay? And there was none of that at all. So these little stories, what they've done for me is mum was always a very anxious and nervous person. And I could never quite understand why she was always fussing about things, which to me, you didn't need to fuss about. But when I learned about the fact she was 10 years old and she was fired on by enemy pilots, and then she said, oh, that wasn't the only time we were fired on. I said, well, what do you mean, ma'am? Oh, we were going to school one day and just around the corner. And um, again, they got fired on. This plane was coming down the main street, firing on people as they were walking down the street and they had to dive into the library. I, just, I said, well, how did that feel? Well, I don't know, she said, because I went to tell my mum and she said, um, are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm fine, she said. And then, then they said, okay, we'll go and get your lunch. So, you know, mum's upbringing was very traumatic. Uh, dad's upbringing was equally traumatic. Dad, uh, during the war, was not evacuated because his mother, they moved out for about six weeks in, uh, away from London. Then it was too quiet, so they came back again. Every night, my dad told me that he would stand on the buildings during the Second World War and he would look at the bombers flying over the enemy bombers and the houses blowing up. And he would collect the shrapnel as his toy collection, basically. And he said it was, you know, every night, night after night, he was standing on the rooftops watching these bombs drop. And he was only what, about 12, 13 years old. So when I got that, those two pieces of information, I'm thinking, well, no wonder my parents at time are a little strange. Because my mum had her experience, dad had his, and um, all the family members had equally as many family experiences of the war. And it made them very hyper alert and very, we've got to get on, we've got to do this sort of thing. It's very difficult for them to relax. So it was actually, for me, it helped me come to terms with some of the decisions my parents had made for us as a family over the years that I hadn't really understood. And because I took the time to sit down with mum and I spoke to a few other relatives as well, I began to understand that if I had had that sort of upbringing, that maybe I would be a little different as well. Um, and so although it was the 1960s I wrote about, I also, within the book, did flashbacks to the wartime because I think it's so important that we understand where what our parents went through because if we're going to judge them on on what they decisions they make for us over the years then maybe we also need to know their background as well 
And I think another thing that the book did for me, there was a sense of healing because... I was just going to say, did you know that going in, that the writing of this story would facilitate your healing from what sounds like were, you know, wounds of your childhood, even though they were completely unintentional? No, not a sweet clue, actually. I think that's one of the key reasons I'd recommend to anybody that they write down their family stories and then turn it into a book if they want to. It's It gives you so much more. Yes, it's a lot of time, but you get so much more back. Because I could talk to my mum about what happens and what their experiences were during the war, I then began to be more compassionate about some of my own anger towards them. Like, why did we do this? Why did we move? And that wasn't fair. That A lot of that disappeared when I began to understand what they were dealing with. The book as well, when the 1960s part of the book focuses on, it starts in Christmas 1962 and it finishes in Christmas 1963. The two Christmases in terms of the family environment were completely different. In 1962, the family was, as it always was, huge number of family members, huge, great Christmas parties. We knew every, everybody within like a five-mile radius. We knew friends, we knew family, we knew everybody. Uh, but by the time 1963 had rolled around, there had been some massive changes in terms of employment. And basically, we were losing all of our family in 1963. And I can remember at the time, and I spoke to my cousin about this, because he's only slightly older than me. I said, I can remember a great feeling of loss in Christmas 1963 because the house was empty. People at school, the, they'd, a lot of them had moved on. It was almost like a, a, a small village where people were leaving. And it was, um, and I said to him, like, did you feel that? Was it just me feeling this? loss because we were children and to be seen and not heard, nobody even consulted or thought we were affected by. He said, yes, he said, so in 1962, he said, we had the usual number of presents from the aunts and uncles and cousins all under the tree for Christmas. And he said, and I can remember, he said, in 1963, so I looked under the Christmas tree and he said, I only had three gifts, whereas usually it'd be like dozens of them because uh, there were 12 siblings in my mum's family and they married, my mum's family was the Walters. And a lot of the Waters people, they married the Clarks. So there were these two, and there were about 12 of them. So we had masses of relatives all over the place. And yet by the time 1963 came around, it all changed. And eventually we left as well. And I've spoken to my brother about this over the years, about, oh, we loved Lamlash Street because it was such a nice environment with all the family members. We felt so secure. Because if your parents were having a strange day, you could just go and talk to your auntie or uncle. And they say, oh, never mind, I'll talk to them. And you just go and play with your cousins. You had a lot of emotional support around you all the time. Whereas when we got to 1963, the supports had left. And eventually, like I said, we left as well. And I had a lot of sadness and unhappiness about that. And, and at the time we left, I was just getting into my early teenage years, which are difficult years anyway. So I had to leave and then I had to deal with a new environment. We moved from London into Kent, which it's only 10 miles, but the differences, the cultural differences are enormous. Sorry, I'm just going to stop you there for a second and, and speak to that, the cultural differences, you know, in Canada here for us, the listeners that are in Canada and even some of the places in the United States. In England, I've only been there once, but I did notice that the culture does change every 10 miles. There's all these little, are the counties where... There's just different practices and so on. So it is a significant change in your life. And 
What I wanted to just touch on is, you know, this trauma in children, speaking of your mother's and your aunt's trauma, you're absolutely right. It would make them react in ways that they wouldn't even know that they were doing it. I think of something I read recently, you know, where a young boy was normally an A student and then was acting out poorly to a male teacher he had, not recognizing the correlation between that male authority figure that was being abusive and then this gentle and kind teacher. And so, I think about your mom and everything that she went through and then having to go through this period of 1962 to 1963, probably somewhat on autopilot, just because of all the trauma that she has been through, not recognizing that, maybe not recognizing that it was traumatizing you and your brother as well. Does that sound accurate? It does. Yeah. And the thing you you have to remember, and that's another reason why I'm glad I wrote the book, is that the mental health supports in 1960 were were nothing. There was absolutely no support at all. And certainly if you go back to the Second World War, there were no supports then either. Mm -hmm. So I don't think my family even understood it was a mental health issue. I I can still remember my dad, even in his very older years, would say, uh, because dad had a lot of issues. And at one point, I think somebody mentioned to him, oh, why don't you try counseling? He said, oh, no, only um, cowards with yellow stripes down their back do that. So the concept of mental health wasn't even there. So I don't, I think they were just in survival mode all the time. Absolutely. Um, I'm so excited to get your book and to encourage it to the listeners as well. I'm going to repeat the title, Lamlash Street, A Portrait of 1960s Post-War London Through One Family's Story. And again, it's on Amazon, US, UK, and Canada. And your website as well, jmphillips with two L's, dot com, jmphillips with two L's. Oh, thank you. J.M. Phillips Author.com. Let me get that straight. J.M. Phillips Author.com. So I want to keep the listeners and the viewers hanging about your book here because you've, you've just shared so much that just really makes me want more. And let's talk a little bit about how you transitioned as an adult and then had to overcome these things that you went through in your teenage years. I think when I finished the book and finished talking to mum, I began to understand how resilient she had had to be to deal with her issues. And I think in turn, that also over the years helped me to do the same thing. The role of parents, I feel to a large extent, is to be role models, to show your children, yeah, you can do anything because I've done this, this and this, whatever. But to go back to your question, it was very difficult when I transitioned from... so. London was very Cockney London. We spoke in Cockney rhyming slang, you know, up the apples and pears and all this sort of thing. So that's how we spoke there. And then we moved to a place where it was very refined, very countryfied. I used to drop my H's. So instead of saying have, you say av, that sort of thing. So it's real sort of Cockney stuff. And you move out to Bexley Heath, which is where we moved to. And they re- had to relearn how to speak, really, apart from anything else, just to fit in in those years. And it was tough. I don't think I ever really felt I was at home there during my, my secondary school, my, my school there from you know, 12 onwards, because it was such a, a struggle to try and fit in. And mum and dad were having their issues because we'd lost all our supports as well. And they'd lost their supports because their family wasn't there with them either. This is in the days when telephones were very expensive, you know, to make calls, no internet. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different support environment that you have. Isolating. It's very isolating. It is actually. But I think for me, over the years, obviously, I mean, I've gone through divorce. I've 
it was only in my 50s that I decided I was going to do my master's degree. I'm, I'm an occupational therapist by profession. And so I, I was at my late 50s when I got my master's degree and I did my thesis, which I did just because I hadn't done it before. Congratulations. And, thank you. And I've done a lot of things because I haven't done them before. And I think for me, writing the book was another one. Mm-hmm. So I think my message on that is, I mean, I'm in my 60s now, right? And I say to people, if you want to do something, do it. Just keep reinventing yourself. Don't worry about the fact it may take you 10 times longer than you ever thought it would. That doesn't matter. As long as you get there in the end. The other thing I did about five years ago, I decided I was going to start running 5Ks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that park run, that park runs in Canada as well. And so I went to my, um, my gym person and said, I'm thinking of running 5Ks. And I thought she'd just laugh at me. She said, no, no, go check with your doctor. Check that out. Doctor said, that's fine. No problem there. And so I hadn't literally hadn't run a step since I was about 12 years old. So there was, wow. like, yeah, so I was like 64 years old. So I'm going to do a 5K. Well, the first time I was the last, there was like 500 people and I was the last one across the line. But I was gradually working my, my way up until COVID hit and then everything sort of shut down. But I, I like to give that message to people to say, what don't limit yourself just because you're a certain age. Never, ever limit yourself because of physical or um, other restrictions. Just find another way to do it because you can do it. And it's so fulfilling when you get to the other end and you change. You change in ways you never thought you could. And life is short. Do what you want to. And never listen to people who say, why are you doing it at your age? They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. And one thing that, and so those are words of wisdom right there. And if you are listening to this on your device or on YouTube, go ahead and go back a little bit and listen to those words again, because they're very powerful. And as you share that, what really strikes me is that at 64, even though you weren't a runner, was like, I'm going to do this. And when we have these dreams, and it doesn't matter if it's writing a book, running a 5K, cooking more healthy, whatever it might be, whatever our goal is to just be careful who we share those to as well, because we don't want other people's belief systems really thrust upon us. When If you have a goal in your heart right now, as Jill was saying, absolutely go for it, protect it, nurture it, keep working on it a little bit at a time. Let's use that 5K. Actually, let's use your book as an example. That just didn't come out overnight, right? That was uh, months, maybe years of work. Three years, yes. Oh, wow. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, because the the biggest problem you have when you're going to write a book is the voice in your head saying, it's not going to be very good. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to read it. You'll be lucky Mm -hmm. if your family actually buy one copy. And then if an actual stranger actually reads the book and and pays money for it, it's like, oh my goodness, really, they did that. (laughs) So it's, and I think that's what slowed you down. That's what slowed me down. Yeah. I, I wasn't sitting there saying, oh, I, I'm, I'm a writer now. I'm deciding I'm going to be a writer. And within six months, this book will be finished. I was sitting there. At times I would write. And at times I'm sitting there thinking, this is a waste of time. You know, what am I thinking? <laughs> and you're in a room all by yourself. And if you ask your, any family and friends at that point, because you haven't written anything, they'll say, oh, right. Uh, yeah, you know, it is hard to write a book. Yeah, I can understand if you feel that, you know, it, it's too difficult. And, and that, so they're not going to, at that point, say to you, you can do it. Nobody said you can do it. Everyone was saying to me, oh, so you're writing a book, are you? <laughs> In other words, mm-hmm. like, why are you doing that? And that was really the overall comments I got from very well-meaning people 
Mm-hmm. But I think that's why it takes people so long to do something new like this, because in your head, there's this voice saying, well, you're wasting your time, you know. And I didn't know anybody else had written a book or was writing a book. Uh, nobody else in the family had written a book at that point. So you really feel like you're putting yourself out there. But having said that, it's the best thing I've ever done. Yes. I'm sitting here today, for example, we do podcasts. Never thought I'd do these. And I understand more about social media. I need to understand more, but at least I'm in there. I have a Facebook author page. I have a website. These are all new experiences to me. And because I've done that, I'm thinking, well, what should I do next? <laughs> I love it. You're saying, are you going to write another book? I, thought, I think I will. But what else am I going to do, you know? As you speak, I'm thinking of Louise Hay, who, you know, is a is a great was a great mentor of mine, continues to be, even though she's passed. And she started her publishing house. I think she was between 55 and 60, you know, always doing something new. I remember she was about 85 when she started painting, mm-hmm. uh, taking dance classes. So you are uh, just on that track as well. That what's next? What's next? And I am just so encouraged by your words. And I know that other writers who think that they're not a writer, who think that they are wasting their time, who are ready to push delete, will be so inspired by your story. And that little voice in your head, whatever that creative project that you are working on to the listeners and to the viewers, whatever that creative project that you're working on right now, that little voice in your head, nobody's going to like it. Why am I doing this? It's not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. I need more education, whatever it might be. Know that that is 100% normal. It is 100% normal. And to just keep going, keep going, keep going. And you will achieve things like Jill has done. And you will be saying, what's next? Yes. Yes. It's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I want to uh, repeat the website, jmphillipsauthor.com. That's with two L's, jmphillipsauthor.com. And the book again is Lamlash Street, A Portrait of 1960s Post-War London Through One Family's Story. I can't wait to read it. That's lovely. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. It's lovely talking to you. Oh, thank you for being here, Jan. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to become an internationally certified Heal Your Life teacher and coach, please visit thetraining.ca. To be a guest on the show and share your story, please visit victoriajohnson.org. Thank you so much for joining us.